Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Welcome back to the Awaken Podcast, uh, episode four of the series on Ephesians. Uh, I'm here with Dallas, and uh, we're really looking forward to diving in and unpacking this chapter for you. So Dallas, why don't you open by reading to us Ephesians 4 in the NRSV translation? Sure. Chapter 4 of Ephesians begins like this. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. 
and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Uh, there's a lot there, and I absolutely love it. Um, I don't know about you, Dells, but one thing I noticed that I'm looking forward to talking about is how up until now, uh, like we know that this letter is addressed primarily to people who would have been considered Gentiles by uh, Jewish believers. And here he's like, do not be like the Gentiles. So you're, it's a bit of a whiplash. You're like, wait, who are the Gentiles? Aren't we Gentiles? We've always been called Gentiles. Like, what? It, it, and I think um, one thing that we have done as readers of Paul in the West is kind of treat the, the New Testament uh, letters as like a grab bag of quotes. Like we could all quote a few verses from the epistles, but we don't know how to like hold the whole letter as one unified, intentionally thought out argument. And so... I'm like, wait, there's something here. I think if I'd only ever read, you know, heard a little sermon on this chunk of chapter four, it'd be like, don't be like the Gentiles. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I don't think in the church I grew up in, we would have called it them the Gentiles, but we would say like, don't be like the world or I don't know, what's another category? Don't, don't be like the pagans, the unsaved, the, the non-Christians. Um the category of like insider outsider would be like Jew and Gentile uh, for within that circle of, of Judaism. Um, like Gentile isn't a, a certain ethnicity or a certain social class. The Gentiles are just the unsaved, those on the outside, um, those who aren't like us. And here he's like, don't be like them. So he's just assumed to the people he's speaking to, you are inside the household of God you have a seat, you're already here, you're inside. So now let's consider for a moment that you shouldn't live as if you were outside. And he, Paul plays around a lot. And, and this is setting us up for what's going to happen in chapter five. Uh, so, so there's these binaries that Paul's going to use, Jews, Gentiles, insiders, outsiders, husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, slaves. Uh, and he's going to flip those all over and, and, and kind of dismantle some of our underlying assumptions about those binaries. And this is the first of it. He's, he's now, uh, he's, he's addressing Gentiles in the first couple chapters, uh, affirming very pastorally and lovingly and provocatively that you belong and you are on the inside. And now he's gonna speak with so much confidence that you are on the inside that he can now refer to those Gentiles knowing that it's not about any of the people. It, it, it's really, it's quite mind-blowing. So he does that um, specifically in verse 17. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles. Ah, but um, before that, I think it's important. Um, Paul appeals to the fact that he's a prisoner in the Lord, not to the fact that he's an apostle. So that's somewhat unique. Some, sometimes in Paul's arguments, he's like, I'm an apostle, so you should listen. Um, I, I believe he does that in Galatians. But here... He never appeals to his authority or his power. So he never says, because I am the head of the household. <laughs> I am the male pastor who's the head of the church. He, he doesn't do any of that. He's like, because I am, I therefore, the prisoner, like lower than all of this, 
Um, it'd be really interesting if at the end of chapter five or, or halfway through chapter six, I guess he had a like, and prisoners submit to your prison guards or submit to the authorities or submit to the the judge or whatever. Um, he, he puts himself, because I'm a prisoner, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And that life of worthiness isn't immediately about some kind of purity code, but to live a life that is worthy is first and foremost humility and gentleness. So I think there's five you have in verse two. So living a life worthy of your calling, which is a calling of belonging inside the house of God. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, um, and peace. This is it. None of those attributes have to do with power, authority, glory, honor, uh, you know, mastery, ownership, none of that. It's, these are very, um, probably in the West, um, associated with uh, femininity associated with motherliness, um, caregivers, uh, humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. That's the beginning. Paul's a prisoner, and then these are very lowly attributes, not often associated with like, like no one's like, you'd make a really good soldier because you're so gentle. You should be in the military. <laughs> we, don't, we don't say that, right? We're like, you're going to make a really good mom. You're so gentle. You're so patient. Like, like, like we do that. And, and so these are the attributes. These are the attributes that if, if you have them, that's the beginning of living a life worthy of your calling. It's not associated with power and authority. And, and that's the beginning of the argument. So we have to hold that for the rest of the book uh, to the end of chapter six. And obviously all chapters one to three have built us up to this. So. Yeah, what's fascinating about that is that immediately following those those first couple of verses of uh, of talking about humility and gentleness and patience and love and peace, the things that are supposed to be in the character of the church of the body, um, then Paul says that you're all one. It's not um, like in in verse four through six. It's, there's one body, one spirit, one God, one faith, one baptism. All of this. It's it's not. Uh, yeah, there's one, but you know, then there's the other ones who are like 1.5. They're not like the thing. Um, and I thought of, you know, historically the church has been separated by like denominations. Mm-hmm. Like, well, there's an us and them kind of mentality behind it. And I still think we have that. Oh, totally. When it comes to denominations um, and many other things. Like I have friends who have gotten into fights over Christianity because one is Catholic and the other is Protestant. Yeah, um, yeah but both fighting that they are the true Christian. And now I think we're seeing more of like the progressive Christians versus like traditionalist yeah, Christians. Yeah. Um, yeah. One I see a lot is like caring more about social justice versus like personal piety and morality. And then what we're called to the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're part of each other. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's saying that you, you know, there cannot be two groups like, and so I just, when I was reflecting on this, I just thought, what would it look like if we dare imagine a fully united church? Yeah, someone, um, someone who is in my life, not 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 affiliated with Awaken, but sure. like a extent extended family member, sent me this article. This is probably like a year ago, 
and with like deep concern because I think he or she had listened to some of the sermon recordings and they were like, I understand that your church is very concerned about social justice. And so I just wanted to send you this like food for thought. And and then I kind of responded. I was like, what do you mean my church? You mean our church? Our church, Mm. our church. Like he lives in another part of Canada. Our church, there's one, one church. Our church is concerned with social justice, the church. Um, And also, you know, but we do that. Your church does a lot of that. Hey, oh, your church has our church. Yeah. That's a huge part of this as well. That the, the beginning of his argument is one. There's one body, mm-hmm. and one spirit, um, and one head that is Christ. Yep. There's not a bunch of heads and bodies, and there, there's one. So, that kind of emphasis on unity and connectedness is going to be really epic. Um, yeah, I like I like the way he uses the metaphor of body throughout um, his writings, Paul. Like that one body, um, one body with many parts is in Corinthians. Um, the head and the body here, and the idea that like we're not individuals, we're one unified atom, in in inanimate or, or animated by the Spirit. Christ has one body, not many. It's profound. Um, I think we're, we decided we're not going to unpack uh, the, the theological components here of this like way that Paul quotes the Psalms about ascending on high and descending into the depths. And as much as I think you and I would love to get into like systematic theology of... We can get nerdy about it, but... You know, the, the, the Nicene Creed and all these things uh, wouldn't be very pastoral and practical for a, a missional parish church like Awaken. So that's okay. But please feel free to email us or say, hey, on Sunday, I want to talk more about that. We would love to do that. But I think we're interested in this kind of the way our faith is on the ground. And so um, in verse 11, we have this uh, talk about spiritual gifts. Um, And there's a few different places in Paul's letters where he talks about gifts and the lists are different. Um, Here in verse 11, he says, um, the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. there's like a really important missional pastor, uh, Fitch, who has uh, like a whole test, an online test you can take. You, you pay like $10 called the APEST test to discern which one of the five you are. APEST, uh, the, an acronym for Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Shepherd, Teacher. And it's like this five-fold approach that your elders board, you should have at least one of each. And your, you know, your leadership should be balanced to have all five and not just focus on one. Um, and so I've, I've definitely been part of traditions that kind of these are the five gifts and which one are you and a healthy church will have a balance of all. And yet in other writings of Paul, there's gifts of, of healing and prophecy and hospitality. And so it's kind of interesting to, to take it all in together. But have you ever done like a spiritual gifting quiz and discern several, what your gifts are <laughs> several yeah we had i remember i think the first one that uh would have happened would have been in like in young adults at foothills we would have had teachings on spiritual gifts we did a whole series on um there's a pastor in ontario his name is john thompson who does a, a whole series on a number of spiritual gifts and, and so his would be more than five it's like whatever it is, 11, 12, something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, sweet. So I took that. Um, and then I, you know, obviously in university, I've had 
um, classes where we talk about the different giftings and you have a chart of like, if you have this one, you probably have this one too mm. or something like that. So I've had different teachings like that. Have you ever considered like, I feel like it's no longer um, cool <laughs> to say like, you know, on Facebook sharing like some BuzzFeed, uh, the five gifts of the spirit, which one are you? Yeah. I'm an apostle. I'm an evangelist. Uh, we, like, we don't really do that, but we do do like the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs and we yeah. can go off on that. Like I think the Enneagram is a little bit less trendy right now, but like two years ago, it was like, I'm an Enneagram three, which means I go to a six and stress and a nine and integration. And we can spiritualize that and help understand our hearts and, and, and this is how God made me and that's okay. And I think it, it's interesting how there is something in us that wants to know, like, how did God make me? Um, what are the, what are the unique gifts I bring to the world and to the church? And um, I, I don't know. I, and I think it's a problem. I think when we talk about it, like this is just how I was born. Like God created me an apostle. Um, because that's not Paul's understanding at all. Paul's understanding is that it's a spiritual gift and that it it sort of comes at a certain point in your life. And if you don't know what that gift is, then you go to the elders for prayer and the people in your congregation kind of affirm your gifts and identify them with you. And so it's it's a little different than the Enneagram, but I think we could easily blur those lines and talk about them the same way. So with that, Dallas, what which one are you? And do you have like a sub gift or a, I don't know. I've had, and, and see, that's it. Like, like I said, I've taken tests and I've ha I've listened to um, sermons about the spiritual gifts and people and through that been like, oh, well, I think I have uh, these three. And so the, the three that have come up the most in my life have been um, administration, um, leadership, although that one's on the board of whether or not that's a spiritual gift um and then teaching and but this brings up the 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 concept of can, do you keep those gifts forever or are they going to be are you going to have it for a little bit and then maybe it's going to holy spirit's going to take that and move it on to somebody else um because i remember when i first started working at foothills people kept telling me like you have the spiritual gift of administration and I was like oh okay cool you keep telling me this and so I'm like sure because I helped clean up clean out a closet once like a, a big storage room at foothills and they're like you had so much fun with this. clearly you have the gift of administration and I remember just kind of going along with that um but then when I was and I do enjoy some administrative tasks but if that's like all I'm doing I don't I don't I can't handle it I go crazy um but the one that I would say has been most prominent for me has been the spiritual gift of teaching, but I'm trying to nurture that more. I think even through, through things like this, like doing a podcast with you yeah, um, totally. or like getting to do communion on the weekend. Like those are places where I, I love being able to serve and I feel so full afterwards. Well, and two things that come to mind for me, one is like, this gift wasn't given to you for your own personal self-fulfillment. Mm. You know, like this, your gift of apostleship affects your ability to like flourish. It's pretty clear that you were given a gift. Um, the gift wasn't given to you. It was given through you to the church. And I think that with like, you know, the, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, 
is like everything I was given is given not to me but to my neighbor and it's my job to pass it on. <laughs> um, so uh, God loves the church and, and loves the church so much that God has gifted the church with apostles and evangelists and prophets and shepherds and teachers. And these are gifts to the church, to everyone. So, so I receive the gift of your teaching I receive the gift of someone else's um, prophecy, uh, someone else's apostleship. We all receive these gifts. So, so sometimes it's like I received the gift of teaching. Um, and that all, while that is true, it's also the gift of teaching was given to me for Awaken. Yeah. For Awaken's good. Like I think you're, you're given a gift. And it, it, it's a gift from God, so it sounds probably pretty important. And I think we have a hard time acknowledging what I'm supposed to do with this skill, um, spiritual skill, and also how do I, what's my posture of humility before the people in the congregation and the gifts that God is giving me through them? You know, like I, I've been invited to things and been like, nah, that's not really my jam. Never, so sorry. But then I'm like, God, where are you? <laughs> God's like, I've been trying to connect with you. I keep gifting the, like, like God's pulling us deeper and deeper into community. Yeah. So I wonder what it would look like for me to look at every person in the church as a gift. And that the Holy Spirit is pursuing me through them. And so I don't need to like go into like my prayer closet to connect with Jesus. I go to the church. These are gifts given to all of us. And so that, that, that's one side of this for me is really this is for the building up of the church, not for the building up of me. Yeah. So I could use my like, gift of teaching to like boost my brand <laughs> and profit from it. And like, you know, that it's not a gift to me, though. It's a gift to the church. And then I don't have to feel embarrassed or, or guilty or like, oh, I really like teaching. It's like, no, this is my response. I'm responsible um, to use this well for the joining and knitting together um, of the church. And it's also my responsibility to receive the gifts that I've been given in my brothers and sisters and, and siblings here. So then on, on the other hand of that, though, what I often find is like, because churches are structured this way where you have a lead pastor, it's kind of expected that that pastor does all of these things sometimes, like consciously or not. We are like, oh, you know, we need more new people. And then the pastor's like, you're right. Okay, we need an evangelism program. Uh, you know, we need to talk about these social justice things more. Oh, you're right. Okay, I got to become more prophetic this this week. And, oh, we really should, you know, care for people. There's a lot of vulnerable people who are feeling unsupported. You're right, the shepherds, shepherding. And it, it burns pastors out so fast that you have to be all of this because the gift of shepherding is not, there's no hierarchy. These gifts aren't ranked. And I think it's okay to be like the the, the pastor is is one part. Um, the pastor is not on top, leading down. The the pastor is serving and paying attention and being curious. And you you can't just give someone a job, which requires gifts they don't have. I think it would be kind of a pastor's job or a leader's job to help people identify their gifts and then call them call them into to using them and giving grace as they develop them. But yeah, and I think there's, I think that raises an interesting point too, that as you said, like the pastor is not meant to serve in all these capacities because like you and Nikayla are one person 
and you cannot serve the church on, let's say that it's just the, the five gifts. You can't do all of that for the whole church. That's exhausting. Um, but I think it's important for uh, people in the church to remember too, that just because you don't have a certain gift doesn't excuse you from ever serving in that. Like, Oh, I'm a teacher. I, I can't, sorry, I can't do any of that. Well, m- maybe not all the time, but there might be a time where you need to like, you need to step into a role and fill that for a period of time. And then you can back away and go to the other thing again. But still, I just think that it's, it's like the Enneagram where you're like, well, I'm always this. So I won't even bother with that. It's not an excuse to not do something. It is an invitation to, to serve and to be part of the community. Yeah. In a way, like every one of these gifts is inherently pastoral. Like if we think of pastoral as like loving and caring for the sheep, like pastoral shepherding. Um, And here in, in the beginning of chapter four, all of us, every single one of us, new Christian, mature Christian, humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace. Those are pastoral attributes. So if you're an evangelist, you're an evangelist with humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. You're a prophet with humility, gentleness. Like you can't just kind of rage against the machine and be like, well, I can't help it. It's because I'm a prophet. I'm sorry. If you were not doing that with humility and gentleness and patience and love, it wasn't of the spirit. So all of these gifts are pastoral, but no pastor has all of these gifts, if that makes sense. So I think I, I wondered if like the days, like like just our whole way of being church in the West, where you have like a, a person on staff called the pastor, if, if some of that culture is shifting and that language is shifting and, you know, because we have kind of like like the role of the prophet to, to sort of call us out uh, towards the, the justice and righteousness of the covenant in God um, is not a gift you can use when you're on the payroll and so because the the person on the payroll has more authority that prophetic voice gets pushed out and then so i I just i'm I'm curious how we could be a church in a way that really sees all of these gifts as all being pastoral all being gifts all of us have um every one of us has and um for the building up of, of the body of christ and we all have a responsibility to give and receive, participate in the exchange of those gifts. Yep. Um, but anyway, I think uh, I would love to hear people comment or reach out and let us know what your gifts are. And, uh, or, you know, you want to know what gifts you have. And, and maybe there isn't really a place at your church or at this church to, to use your gifts. Well, that sounds like an elder's situation. <laughs> Oh, we got a whole bunch of apostles here and there's no real place for them to like use their gifts. Well, that's that's a problem. So I feel like the elders are part of making sure there's space um, to pay attention to and receive the gifts that the Spirit is giving us because the, the Spirit is the one doing all of this, not the pastor, not the board, not the elders. It's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 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 But uh, I really am curious about... So... In verse 15, no, sorry, verse 14, he says, uh, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. Um, But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Um, I don't know 
if it's just me, but every time I'm reading Ephesians, I'm like looking forward to the headship text in Ephesians 5. So I love how Paul plants head, body, head, body throughout. He's building up to something. Um, But we have to grow up into the head, which is Jesus, uh, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped um, as each part is working properly, promotes growth into love. Love is the ultimate goal. Um, I think at the beginning of Paul's argument in Ephesians, he's really worried about these theologies and these ideas that are tossing the people apart, causing division. And it has to do with who's on the inside and who's on the out, who's a, who's a proper believer and who's just a Gentile. And he's like, now we're no longer going to discuss this. We're going to move forward and, and talk about love and being built up in love and not the the debate side of it. So I think it's important to understand that at the heart of that, like, what is it that they're being tossed to and fro to, to and fro by? What are they? What is the wind of what? What is the doctrine that is tossing them around? And it seems to be the doctrine of um, the Judaizers versus uh, the gospel. So people coming in being like, no, you absolutely need these certain things. He he's saying, yeah, like 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 Paul Paul plants a church. Um, you have a, a place of belonging. You are forgiven. It's the gospel. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of Jesus. You are on the inside. You belong. And then Paul continues on to visit other churches or he's in jail. And then people are like showing up saying, no, this is not true. Paul's wrong. You actually need to be circumcised or you actually need this or that. And then they kind of buy into that as as we all would. And then Paul comes back or he writes a letter. He's like, no, what are you doing? I, I thought we were over this. I, I thought I made it clear. Um and that just must be so exhausting for Paul to have to continue to do that work. He's like, stop. We can't just be tossed to and fro all the time. We have to stand firm in what we know, which is love. Um, Jesus. Jesus is the head. Not Paul. Not Peter. Not James. Not, not Apollo. Um, it, it, it's Jesus. And so in Jesus, there is no Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Um, and so I don't know. Our church is... Uh, we all get tossed to and fro by ideas and doctrines. Well, I think we we still like to discuss, I was saying this to you earlier, that we, you know, on any theological concept that you could bring up or any verse in the Bible, you could go and find a thousand books written by various people across the world who interpret it differently or think about it differently. And I mean, thankfully, we don't live, you know, in ancient history where if you declared something slightly incorrect you'd be murdered for it um at least not here but um we still have like i was saying like my my core group of friends from ambrose we like to sit and talk about theology we have different perspectives on things and but as soon as that becomes like a a place of just aggression and dominance of look i i'm right based off of x y and, and and z Therefore, I am superior. It creates conflict between our friend group, but we can also lovingly discuss those things and have passionate discussion about it mm-hmm. without it destroying the integrity of that community. Um, because like you said, you know, even Paul himself says, he's like, it's not, it's not Paul who is the head. It's not anybody else. And I think even in our day, we could, we could supply names in that place of being like, well, 
actually, it's not like Walter Brueggemann, who is our head. Yeah, or right. it's not Ruth Haley Barton or Willie Jennings right. or any of these people. Or for me, it'd be like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. It's Jesus. He is our head. So how do you love well? Because you are all. Yeah, Jesus didn't rely on his ability to speak and argue and formulate thoughts. No. Um, and so I think like I would never want to say like you're not allowed to have any theological debates and discussions because that's very loving, life-giving and that's a very Jewish way of reading the scriptures, which I think would be probably a better way. But as soon as you're trying to solve a problem and come to a conclusion and disenchant the the text by saying, okay, here's the the answer, here's the final conclusion, that can kind of come from a place of arrogance. And so as long as we're having dialogue and the, the table is open to all, this can be life-giving as we're, we're learning to listen to one another, um, to see through each other's eyes, to love each other the way we've been loved. Like, this is all good. But sometimes we have this approach of like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Case closed. Like, wait, what? What do you mean case closed? I, I want to stand in awe before this mystery forever. And now that you've been like, well, there's no mystery here. We figured it out. Here's the answer. Oh, Okay. And then the next generation has a different answer. So I think it's important that we're continually in dialogue, uh, working this out. Um, it becomes a problem when we weaponize that, uh, where one group, you know what I mean? Like we come up with so much focusing on finding the answer instead of seeking the answer together. And I don't know, humility, gentleness, patience, yeah. <laughs> love. Um, that, that, that's always at the heart of this. So we're building each other up. Yeah. But then can we just talk for a second about this wild rhetorical device of Paul's where he says in verse 17, you must no longer live as the Gentiles live. It seems to just come out of nowhere. Cause you're like, well, you know, Paul's a missionary to the Gentiles. Paul loves the Gentiles. Paul's all about the Gentiles. And now all of a sudden Paul's like, don't be like those horrible mm -hmm. Gentiles. What's going on? Like, like if you didn't know Ephesians, you'd be like, yeah, that's right. Those horrible Gentiles. He's, he's playing with that metaphor. Um, and, and he plays with that metaphor in ways that are very offensive that I think would offend all of us uh, kind of middle upper class folks in the West who have historically <laughs> done a lot of this uh, interpretation work. Um, so, for example, in Galatians, Paul does this really offensive thing. I'm not sure if people can follow this argument. but So in the Old Testament, you have Abraham, Abraham's wife, Sarah, and Abraham's uh, surrogate slave, Hagar. Because Sarah is unable to get pregnant, um, Sarah gives Hagar as a surrogate slave to Abraham. <clears throat> and so Abraham uh, forcibly impregnates Hagar. And Hagar becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son of Abraham, Ishmael. But uh, Paul suggests in Galatians that Sarah became supernaturally pregnant with Isaac. Isaac was born of the spirit and Hagar, uh, sorry, Ishmael was born of the flesh. So the laws of nature, birds and the bees, creates Ishmael. But the supernatural, impossible realm of the Holy Spirit creates Isaac. So historically, you know, the Jewish people are the children of Isaac. And then the children of Ishmael are not part of us. But what Paul does in Galatians is flips that completely and says the, the Jewish believers who are depending on the law and circumcision, circumcision for their salvation 
are children of Hagar, and the Gentiles, who are depending on the Holy Spirit, are the children of Isaac. And suddenly, can you imagine how offensive that would be? Yeah. All the Jewish believers in the congregation who come from an unbroken line straight to Isaac, you are the children of Hagar because you are depending on works of the law to gain membership into this community. But the Gentiles who know they have absolutely nothing to boast about except the work of Jesus Christ, those are the children of the Spirit, the children of Isaac. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. That's the most offensive thing I could think of to say. And, and Paul, he's, that's what he's doing here. He's now, he's not being like, you used to be Gentiles, but now you're on the inside. So let's talk about the people who are still Gentiles out there. He, he could very much be referring to people who think they're on the inside. Like he, he, he's playing with this binary of, of Jew and Gentile or insider, outsider. And so I think, A, it's pastoral because he's like, this word can't hurt you anymore. It's not you. Um, but this is how people used to talk about you before you were on the inside. And so I, I don't think he's talking about it like, oh, those, those wicked Gentiles out there. It, it's almost kind of tongue-in-cheek, like don't live as those Gentiles live. Whoa, what? Who are they? Who are they? Like, like it, it's very pastoral. And he's just saying, you know, the, the, the people who are alienated from the life of God because of their greed and their hardness of heart, um, those people don't know what we know about the love of Jesus. And so you ought to stop living the way they live and, and giving in to being sucked into the debates and philosophies that they're trying to suck you into. Um, yeah, it, it, it's really profound. It's a profound moment. I do think it's important that um, in the West, because of purity culture and because of, well, Willie Jennings would call it the sin of whiteness, <laughs> um, uh, we tend to read this the way Paul writes here. And he has sections like this in a lot of his epistles. And we simply focus on um, talks of sexual immorality and impurity. And then we completely skim over his talks of greed and that kind of injustice. And I think um, we get into a lot of trouble when we try and like expose that idea because we definitely have a hierarchy of sins in our culture here where greed isn't really that big of a deal. Like, like it is, but you know, um, and so we kind of over or not over, but we, we really emphasize the Gentiles. They used to like have orgies and, uh, just sleep around and it was really bad. It's like, well, also the, the Gentiles were focused a lot on, um, money and property and wealth and, uh, kind of were corrupted by their lust for more stuff. And when you start talking that way, all of us kind of are like, Ooh, wait, what? Mm. <laughs> and eh, cause a lot of injustice in the world. Um, and I think that's a huge thing. I think in, in Paul's um, context, when he talks about like the desires of the flesh, it's not the desires of the flesh for like um, bodily pleasure in terms of like sexual intimacy or good food or um, a nice glass of wine at a, a gathering of friends. Um, that can't be it. Jesus ate a lot of good food and drank a lot of good wine. But 
I think the desires of the flesh um, that Paul's referring to here and, and the desires of the flesh that would be a much more relevant uh, topic for us here in one of the richest cities in the world would be the desires to have more, more money, more property, more stuff, and to not be concerned about how my desire for more stuff impacts people all over the world and including people here in my neighborhood, but also the people who are working in factories making all the stuff that I desire to have. And it becomes very profound when you hear Paul be like, don't live that way anymore. So the, the early church, like, like, so Paul's letters were written before any of the gospels. Um, and Paul most likely traveled with Luke who wrote the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And so we get the history and the backstory of all of this in, in Acts. And in Acts, the first few chapters, you get this idea that you have these folks who are mostly unmarried, mostly uh, not owning any kind of property, like mostly kind of lower class, um, people who aren't Roman citizens, people who are on the margins, who, are, who have been displaced, uh, people who are in diaspora. They come together in this movement of, movement of the spirit. Uh, there's an intimacy where they speak each other's language. Um, and then there's an intimacy where they, they live together and share everything in common. So they've gone against the flow of the, of the economy or the market. Um, they are selling all of their possessions to share as a church. And that's radical. It's causing, um, um, it says in, in Acts 2 or Acts 4 that there were no poor among them because that's impossible if you share everything. So everything I own, I sell it. And then we pool all of our resources together. I can't even imagine how wealthy Awaken would be if we actually did that. You know, like, like look at how much we all have, really, in terms of, like, property and um, stocks, investments, whatever. Uh, so, so you share everything. And there's a story in Acts 5 where one married couple, the only married couple in the entire New Testament, um, Ananias and Sapphira, who are talked about. I think there's an allusion to, like, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They're, they're probably married, but their marriage isn't discussed at all. But the only married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who we get a bit of a story about, um, they put their marriage before the church. And they're like, well, we'll give some of our money to the church, but we got to keep a little bit of a, a fun for ourselves, obviously. You know, we, we're going to have kids one day. We got to have something to pass on to them. Um, and the family, the family comes first. Um, and in that story, they both drop dead for that. It's a quite a powerful text that excludes, uh, it, it, it takes um, marriage away from the center. <laughs> puts it on the outside. And Paul regularly is like, it would be way better if you didn't get married. But if your desire um, for marriage is distracting you from the mission, go quickly get married and then come back. Um, but there's this, this thing that's happening in, in the early church where they're not going to live according to the ways of the world and focus on their own property and their own wealth and their own mini piece of paradise. They're going to go the opposite direction sell everything, give it all up, pull it together, live life together, make sure there are no poor in their midst. And if it ends up being a community of people who are kind of already poor, because wealthy people aren't really going to jump into that, then that's what, that's what Paul's working with here. So this is a community that is going the opposite direction um, of, of the dominant system. These are not people who are in both of the dominant system, but also trying to have personal piety. These are people who have left that flow uh, of the market that, that, that flows always towards death and injustice and corruption. 
you're flowing, you're, you're, you're leaving that flow into a new one that goes the opposite direction towards life, generosity, abundance, humility, kindness, self-sacrifice. It's not about being served. It's about serving. It's this flow in the other direction. So a church is technically supposed to be a group of people who move towards places that have been abandoned, um, that moves towards generosity and self-sacrifice. And because of the generosity, there is actual change in the neighborhood. But one thing we do wrong, so for example, every time you read the word you, it's a plural you, it's you the community. But because in English, we don't have a second person plural, we think of it as an individual. So we've kind of botched the whole thing by believing in like personal salvation in this way that it's me and Jesus and my private faith. And I, a, a, a term for that would be um, moral, or what is it? Therapeutic moral deism, where you have a private relationship with God that is therapeutic. Um, it's, it's individual. It helps you deal with your stress. It helps you feel better. It helps you feel less sad. And because of that, you can do your job better and make money more efficiently. And it's personal, it's private, and it doesn't change anything in the neighborhood. It doesn't affect the way you spend money. It doesn't affect the way you buy property. It doesn't affect what neighborhood you live in. If anything, it helps you buy property and live in nice neighborhoods faster. And uh, I think Paul's calling us out in that you actually aren't supposed to live that way anymore. You aren't supposed to be darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life flow of God. Um, those folks have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greed, and impurity. Um, and that is not what we learned in Christ. Jesus flowed against that stream every second of his life. He flows away from wealth and power and glory towards... Um, the margins, the least of these, he flows the other way. And so that's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a group. You, you the group. Um, I've heard um, Beth Stovell is from Texas, I think. And when she teaches Greek, or she grew up, I think it's in Texas. I might be wrong. I doubt she listens to this. <laughs> um, but she teaches um, the value of the word y'all when you're reading the Bible. Whenever you see you, you should say y'all. Um, Y'all must no longer live as the Gentiles live. Uh, they're darkened in their understanding. They've lost all sensitivity. For surely y'all have heard about him and were taught in him. Y'all were taught to put away y'all's former way of life and y'all's old self. This is hard for me because I've never barely even been to the States. Um, uh, clothe yourselves with the new self. I'm trying to think of where else that would be really profound. But it's not you, the individual. It's you, the community of God who share all your wealth and practice radical hospitality and generosity in a specific place that actually changes the neighborhood. Like there wouldn't be a, uh, what are those companies called? There's, a, there's one or two in bonus. Um, payday loans, like those really, really high interest loan places that are just like totally predatory. Like they're just horrible. Like you could go get like a $400 loan and have to pay like $800 interest. It's super corrupt and everyone knows it, but um, lower income neighborhoods have a bunch and they just pray on people who are like, I got to pay rent tomorrow, but I don't get paid till Wednesday. I need a $150 loan and the interest is so high, but you're so desperate, you don't care because you, you can't lose your house that you end up accumulating so much debt and it's really messed up. 
I'm like, if we as a church were paying attention to what Paul's saying here, um, there'd be no more payday loan places in our neighborhoods because the church has so much that if you need to make rent, we're here like that. What? It would literally change. It would change the neighborhood. It would change the design of the city. Wow. If we left the flow, it flowed always towards the economy and flowed always towards our own, uh, what do you call it? Assets, your own worth, flow the other direction. Um, Jesus, if anybody has the right to like use the power and authority they have to get more power and authority, it's Jesus. But he flowed the other direction all the way down to become a human, not just any human, a human born into poverty that took on the most shameful and disgraceful lot in life possible in the Roman Empire, which is that of someone who's crucified. Flow the other way. Don't be like the Gentiles who flow towards, what, the suburbs? Flow towards, um, Willie Jennings calls it um, the three demonic virtues, mastery, possession, and control. Flow the other way. That's the life you've been called to in Christ. So live a life worthy of that calling with humility and gentleness and patience and love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Don't live the way they live. And then, uh, yeah, I love that he, th this chapter ends with this call to community and to building one another up. I find it really convicting. I don't know. Do you have what, do you have thoughts on uh, the last few verses here of chapter four? I think just coming from a perspective of most of my life, where it was indivi very individual, like you were talking about, how it's you and your faith, and if you get your faith right, God will provide for you. He will give you what you need, and usually, what you need in that case is a lot more than what you really need. Mm -hmm. And we separate ourselves as much as we think we're a part of a community. We separate ourselves for various reasons. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's fear of exposure of what's really going on in your life and you don't want the help of the community. Um, but Paul's exhortation to the church is that the church is like the safe place. Mm -hmm. That's where everybody should come and everybody should be entirely other focused. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a radical call. Mm -hmm. I think it's difficult. It's very challenging um, when it means giving up yourself and your things. Maybe literally, maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, that's powerful. His emphasis is always on the neighbor, the neighborhood. Um, if you notice um, in the, the last few verses of chapter four, he has... Um, Putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, mm. for we are members of one another. And I wonder, like, well, I don't lie about my neighbors. I don't know. What does that mean? Well, I have a big fence and a big lock on my door so that they don't know how much I have or what I have because they're scary and they're going to come and take it. And there's like this posture of suspicion towards the other, towards the neighbor. And Paul um, calls that dishonesty. <laughs> Open the door. Let's talk about it. Like there's a be, be honest to your neighbor. And then he does that just at the, um, there's a text here, um, which I think is profound in, in relation to this. In verse 28, he says, thieves must give up stealing as a Bonesian. I'm like, yeah, give my bike back. 
Um, I'm not sure that is what he's referring to, but maybe. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work. Oh, yeah. Like, I can think. We, we like that. Like, you got to work. You know, the Protestant work ethic. You got to stop being lazy. Stop uh, depending on the government. You got to work. So that you would have something to share with the needy. Wait a minute. In Boness, it's the needy who are stealing bikes. So is this Paul being like, stop stealing bikes, you dirty thieves? Or is Paul saying, why are you living your life in a way that there are people stealing bikes in your neighborhood? If you work so hard and you have jumped into the flow of Christ, there would be, like, I think there's a reversal here. He's not shaming the needy. He's shaming those who have hoarded so much and, and um, not, like, like, like if you have um, any excess, the call is towards generosity. And if you're not living a life of generosity, then you're a thief. Mm. You're stealing from the needy. So I think how many bikes, like I've probably had like eight bikes stolen from me, which is fine because I found all the bikes in the back alley. So I was probably just part of the like um, flow of bike stealing. <laughs> you were also the bike thief. Yeah, I never took them from like someone's house in the alley, but we find bike parts and then put them together. Uh, and like I've always just kind of had these like back alley bikes. They're fine. But then because they're not really, they didn't really cost me anything. We maybe don't like lock them up as well as we should and then they get stolen. So there's kind of an economy of, of bikes in bonus. That's fine. But I think, wow, I've had a lot of bikes. I've gone through a lot of bikes. And what if I'm the thief? <laughs> because I don't need to um, have as much as I have. There's a lot more room for generosity. And so all the stuff that I have that I keep investing and saving up and putting in my storehouses, i.e. my savings account, I'm stealing that. That belongs. That was a gift given to me by God for the needy, for my neighbor. It's interesting how we justify the storing up of wealth, even in, in texts like this or in ones that are more, perhaps maybe more obviously about money or wealth. Um, we'll, we'll rationalize it and say like, yeah, it's like, well, okay, we'll, we'll give, you know, our 10% to the church and we'll give to some charities and we'll, we'll help out. But we also got to make sure that we have enough. We've got enough for our things and we're saving up for our future so that, so that one day we can buy that house or that we can be completely debt free um, and all these things. And sure, maybe those are good. Um, and I'm 100% guilty of this myself because I was I was raised to think that yeah, way. Yeah. And but at what point are we just being really selfish and really greedy with our wealth? Well, and it's not like we're not doing it consciously. Like, yeah, I, it's just so normal. It's the way things are done. That's just the way it is. Like, what are you talking about? You can't actually not save up for the future. You're going to have to retire one day. Yep. Um, but that is kind of a scarcity mindset that depends on this belief that there isn't enough and no one will be there to help you when you get old and you can't work anymore. It's this fear, constant fear that there's not enough, yep. not enough community, not enough support. Um, but I, I think of the House of Commons a lot and, and, and these little community houses, which are often like young college students. Um, but there's a co-housing um, 
unit going up here on the same street that Awakened Church is on with 24 units um, of people to live together. And the philosophy is pretty epic if you think about it. So let's say you have 10 adults who work full-time around minimum wage. This doesn't have to be like really wealthy adults. Let's say they make like 38, 40 grand a year, mm-hmm. 10 of them together. So we're talking 400 grand a year. They all rent a house together in bonus that costs $1,200 a month. That's so much money. Yeah. That's an insane amount of money. Like I think, so if I made say after taxes, like $1,500 a month, that's not a lot. Um, most awakeners make a lot more than that, I would, I would guess. So we, there's 10 of us, 10 adults, we make $1,500 a month each. That's $15,000 coming into that house every month. And I, I don't think it's unreasonable for adults in Calgary to make $15,000 a month. So there's a whole other thing there. But let's just say, we're just going to go like people who are working humble jobs, sort of minimum wage, $1,500 a month, where 10 of us are going to come together and live in the same house. So we have one lawnmower one set of couches, you know, um, a couple laptops. Like we don't have our own stainless steel appliances. We share our bills and everything. Like everything is paid for with like say $4,000 a month for the 10 of us. There's still 10 grand left over every single month. We're going to invest that into the least of these in bonus. What would happen? Like five years of that mentality. What that would, that would plant gardens in graveyards $120,000 a year yeah and that's people who aren't wealthy now the the church the evangelical church in North America is arguably some of the wealthiest people in the world so what's Paul talking like it goes back to the neighbor it goes back to the needy it goes back to um the local church uh I think oh wow all of a sudden Paul talking about like personal piety. It, 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 it's, not, it's not the only thing he's talking about. He's talking about something else. And there's a very um, obvious reason why we don't emphasize that stuff. But who are the people that make up the congregation Paul's writing to? People who've been screwed by that system. They probably want to talk about it. And so what if we were to submit to the least of these and follow their direction? suddenly Bonhoeffer's discussions around counting the cost, um, costly discipleship. Yep. Suddenly I'm no longer a Christian just because I was born into it and it's the easiest thing. Um, I've counted the cost and chosen to pick up my cross and follow Jesus toward the very end of greed and selfishness. Yeah. Huh. Suddenly those words carry a lot more weight. Yeah, it's really profound. So um, there it is in the very end of chapter 4 in verse 31. He says, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Be kind to one another. This is hard work. It's not a competition. Um, Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So he begins this argument, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peace. And at the end of chapter four, you got to put away bitterness and wrath and anger, and you got to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. Mm-hmm.